dealt with these questions of who we are as a people and a nation you know and and a lot of uh, things have emerged from it and and you've done it in a way that it is, that is in the usual academic boring sort mm-hmm. of style so uh, maybe i should just read the flap so people know what the book is about mm-hmm. please okay. Yeah, India is both an ancient culture and a young society with all the benefits and burdens of a long history. Despite belonging to an extremely diverse range of castes, tribes, classes and religions, Indians are bound by a sense of shared reality of collective experience. We are all part of a greater whole, an intricate network of thoughts and ideas that has acquired a high level of cohesiveness in a world permeated by information technology. more than ever before we have the opportunity to have a greater awareness of what it means to be indian however it's all too easy to believe we know everything that's to be known about india and indianness just by virtue of being indian this often results in a very simplistic view of our country and our fellow citizens so how do we go beyond stereotypes and how do those of us who are part of this extraordinarily diverse culture and society get a better understanding of ourselves both as individuals and in relation to others This book attempts to provide a nuanced answer to the question of just who we are by probing the collective Indian mind, which is at the heart of the experience of being Indian. So, uh, and Rajesh Kasturi Rangan, a cognitive scientist, use, uses an original multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary research approach drawn from the cognitive sciences, in particular, to understand the Indian mind, and through this understanding, a uh, grasp. who we are as a nation in the 21st century so that's like a lot right <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> my goodness i mean it's kind of hard to and embarrassing to be read back like that <laughs> <laughs> but uh so you know let's start with like a simple question how did you come to write this book oh god um i i'll tell you what it really provoked me to write this book which is um was an interesting um observation that i had i think before going to sleep one night uh, and then i wrote about it the next day which is that the india has existed almost exactly the same one time as the computer has oh right i mean the first really functioning computer came around uh, time you know 1945 or so um mm. after the second world war uh, so what struck me was that you know like the so called original nation states like the us it's the most prominent example the ones mm. that you know we now think of as the major nation states uh, mm. were born at the time when print became uh, more and more common mm. but india i think has 
mostly existed at a time when uh, digital media has become more and more common. So I really started thinking about what does you know what does the computer revolution really mean for nations that have existed uh, for a relatively short period of time. So that's where it started. Oh, okay. In your whole book, like you've touched on, uh, you've touched on you know, our caste awareness, our awareness of religion, and yet the ability also to transcend that, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, but, and you, I mean, I found it very interesting, this bit about the, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, is is this first time somebody's using it or is it my ignorance, this Kosail, uh idea of the Kosail, or is that the correct way I'm pronouncing no, no, I it think, also? I, I, that was, that's me as far as I can tell. I feel okay. like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's a really interesting concept, and you know, a lens through which which you've made me see uh, this thing. So let's start with that. Explain this idea of the cosile. So, I mean, or is it the cosile? I mean, since you, I, I think of it as society, right? So basically, um, imagine yes. uh, instead of society, um, so okay. it's just the S and the C in society flipped. Uh, and the reason being that C for cognition, C for computing, okay. C for climate, mm-hmm. like the things that are the 21st century major, major, problem, um, you know, transformations. Yes. And so imagine a word that goes all the way from mind to uh, what we now call society. And, uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sure you Google probably like 10 times a day, maybe more. <laughs> I Googled society and I found nothing. So I said, did, did, he, did he coin it? I mean, I knew uh, you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, ka, I mean, the idea is that, uh, you know, the technologies of the 21st century uh, start not just with uh, individuals, but from inside the head. Hmm. Right. That, uh, you know, whether it's a politician who's trying to predict how you will vote or, uh, you know, a company that wants to predict what you will buy, they're kind of looking Mm -hmm. inside your head. And so the place to start with is no longer outside your head in a kind of community of individuals, but uh, inside your head in a kind of a community of brains. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. that's really the beginning point of the idea of society. And 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 this idea of uh, you know it's starting inside your brain and, and it's like so um, it's it's so perfect for caste yes. for the idea of caste. So talk about that because that really struck me. You know, mm-hmm. it's an, an entirely imagined thing that all of us have imagined together, but it yes. has great power in the real world, right? Absolutely, and so. Uh, you know, the idea that your brain is something isolated is, of yeah. course, wrong, right? I mean, <laughs> our brains are plugged into the world, and caste yeah. is an example of something that uh, deeply uh, influences the way we think. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, the first time when you are asked, uh, uh, what is your caste? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a little bit of a, you know, if you're not born or if you've not grown up in that kind of environment and mm. suddenly you're faced with it or or worse, you are in an environment in which that is just taken for granted. Mm. So so 
you know the the place where the brain is most obviously present but you don't know it is in places where a certain kind of behavior is totally taken for granted that people treat you in a certain way because your caste is that way right mm-hmm. um, and uh, but the fact is that it still changes and and uh, uh, caste is not fixed uh, yes right uh, i mean i'm not saying that your caste can't change i'm saying that the, our understanding of caste itself has actually changed a lot in the last uh, 75 years um, yes uh we don't expect to work in the same in your caste determined profession right that's mm-hmm. not there mm-hmm. but yet most indian managers are still within caste right so some uh, yes. so there is a you could say there is a long uh, perhaps even an evolutionary uh, uh informed analysis of caste as in why reproduction seems to be uh, more important than production <laughs> oh yes right but wh- wh- why why do you think that is why do you think that we stick to uh, i mean we stick to our caste hmm. in, in in the contemporary era you know we stick to it when it comes to marriage most hmm. of us hmm. but uh, uh you know not i mean obviously not the the hereditary idea you know of your father's a priest or your father's hmm. a farmer and you will be one or marry hmm. one it's not hmm. this not, we don't do that anymore uh i don't want to give a pop evolutionary analysis <laughs> uh, i but uh it's definitely i would say right i mean this is something that people have uh, even talked about about the industrial revolution and how production was always sustained through reproduction right mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, you know the industrial worker who went the man uh, unfortunately always um yeah. who went and worked in the factory uh that person's work was sustained by a woman who stayed at home and made sure that the family reproduced right i mean that yes. those two went hand in hand yes but in the you could say the traditional materialist understanding production came first and reproduction was the ancillary and i mm. think uh, for caste it's the exact opposite it's turned out to be exactly uh, the exact opposite right mm. that production mm. is secondary and reproduction is primary and yeah. uh, and the reason is because of course i think if you think of caste as uh, and this is maybe my explanation uh, if you think of caste as cognitively reproduced right it's there mm-hmm. we have a mental model of caste in our head yes. and mm-hmm. we want to make sure that that is repeated again and again then reproduction is the easiest way the marriage uh, is the is the thing that will keep it going right because once mm-hmm. you replace if you go the other way where uh, you could say let's say let's imagine a world in which you are at birth you are determined that you're going to be x right but you don't mm-hmm. have to marry into any uh, system where um, that x has to be reproduced right then mm-hmm. it just won't happen i mean they'll just be assorted for like in the in your next generation it'll be all mixed up and then people won't want to do it mm-hmm. it's a it's a more robust way to maintain it unfortunately or unfortunately okay okay so while i was reading this i was thinking you know as when you know the term makale putras mm-hmm. you know uh, we tend to look down i mean the ones who admit to being makale putras tend to look down on caste and say it's negative Mm-hmm. but you know it 
it must have i mean like while i was reading this essay it must have great i mean benefits right to have survived and to change like you've shown with the circumstances and with the situation you know and still persist mm mm-hmm. yeah i mean of course gandhi famously supported caste right we know yes this. yes um, and uh, and i think the reasoning that he gave was that in the absence of caste you have unbridled competition right so the in a sense mm-hmm. the capitalist system uh, in his opinion was a real mm-hmm. problem because everybody is competing with everybody and that's a race to the bottom and mm-hmm. caste prevents that from happening so that's definitely one explanation you can imagine that um, and this is there incidentally you know aryan uh, the roman historian writing about mm-hmm. uh, alexander's um, invasion yes right? yes um he talks about how i mean of course that's already several hundred years after alexander uh mm. but nevertheless aryan writes right that people are fighting to the death on in one field and the plowsman is uh you know happily uh, <clears throat> uh you know plowing his field next over as if nothing is happening yes shaking down apples i thought that was a great image yeah <laughs> right well, and, Yeah. So, so this maybe it's a kind of stability that people prize, that the basic bedrock, uh, the productive forces, the agrarian forces that you know until recently were the heart of Indian civilization, are stable, mm-hmm. and and maybe that's what caste does. But you know, it's not the. I mean, there's no other part of the world in which this has been the case. So yes, uh, and and. and uh, agrarian uh, civilizations are where the norm so i think in in india there's a been an extraordinary amount of uh, could say preservation of social structures uh, and mm. and i think that might be a an interesting thing cognitively to study i mean for example um rituals have probably you know stayed alive in india for longer than anywhere else so how do we how do we um create that uh, mental stability uh, i mean and how to study it I mean, that's a you know several uh, research projects waiting to happen yeah yeah and also i found it interesting like you know how like within our lifetimes i mean you know you mm-hmm. mentioned how mandal and mandir changed uh change the way a lot of indians th- think or thought about about the country right mm. it was a big shift mm-hmm. and uh, so how how you know you you mentioned that you've written uh, you've written about it uh, quite a bit in the book so mm-hmm. how, you know let's talk about that and you know how that that shift like exactly like how the shift to 100 years ago the uh, india as a nation independent nation as a nation didn't exist except as a colony right mm-hmm. and then and you talk about how it becomes and now we take it for granted but mm-hmm. as we go ahead things change and you know every every few decades there's a big shift mm-hmm. in, you know? so talk about that and and the constantly changing nature of the indian and the indian nation also maybe you know right the idea of the of indianness yeah so uh 
I mean, the great thing about something like a nation is that we just assume it exists. Hmm. Right? Like we, you know, we are uh, usually naturalizing it. Right? We feel hmm. like it's like a tree or a rock that it, yes. um, it has absolutely no, um, no history to it. It's just there. Hmm. Hmm. But, but of course, nations change. And I mean, this is, uh, you know, every, every social scientist will tell you. But what I think I find interesting is how do we in our minds uh, deal with something that is clearly created by us? I mean, after all, without Indians, there would be no India. Hmm. And yet, at the same time, treat it as if it just exists. Hmm. Right? To me, this is the big thing. And of course, this is true of other things too. Money, for example, which I also hmm. talked about. Um, hmm. That without us, there's no money. Right? But yes. in our individual lives, uh, money is something outside my head. Like, I, you know, it's not something I imagine. Hmm. It's real. And so, it's real. How, yeah, I, I, sadly, for better or worse, uh, it, it's perhaps more real than we want it to be. Um, <laughs> Or maybe you love that. Uh, uh, but that's the, to me, that's the thing that religion and caste and nation um, have this external, like it, it's outside our heads and yet mm. it's in our heads. And yes. how, and how, A, how is that possible? How is something um, uh, external at one level and internal at another level? Um, mm. And, uh, in the last hundred years, you have seen substantial changes. I mean, to give you an ex example, right? In the first so-called Ram Janma Mumi um, uh, campaign, hmm. typically the people who were in front were the um, Mahants. Like, I mean, were religious figures who uh, were associated with it. Yes. Right. But today, I think for most people, it's probably something they experience as a political thing. Right. Like the people front and center are politicians. Yeah. Yeah. So how has I mean, uh, uh, I, I, I feel like the standard academic perspective seems to be that uh, or, or a certain kind of liberal perspective seems to be that uh, religion is infusing politics. Right. But actually, it's the other way around. I think it's politics that has taken over religion. Mm. Right? That, that yeah. um, uh, our idea of whether it is being... Certainly, um, the three major religions, not just in India, but uh, in other parts of the world too, Hinduism, mm. uh, Islam, and uh, Christianity, mm. have a strong component in which the political uh, has become the dominant framing of what a religion itself is. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. And also interestingly, you know, when you talk about how uh, conservatism is, not, is now using, uh, is not really conservative in the sense of being locked in time, right? Absolutely you spoke not. about, yeah. No. I mean, I say this in the book, right? If you use yes. um, sex selective, I mean, if you are performing sex selective abortion and you're mm. using an MRI machine to figure out what the gender of the unborn baby is, 
that's a mm. very technically advanced intervention, right? For purposes that uh, we may call conservative, but actually it's a very radical uh, intervention. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So, but, and I think that that's, uh, that's the nature of conservatism is that it's very selective about uh, what aspects of the modern world it wants to incorporate but when it what it incorporates it just goes full on i mean uh, just as uh, it cells are famous for using digital technology they are not unconservative mm-hmm. about it in fact they are the ones who are at the bleeding edge of it yeah hmm yeah but um, you know your book also mentions about how the you know the the they have to be particular elements that make it suitable right and that make a certain like 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 female feticide and why indians choose to use that technology to um for selective abortions whereas other people didn't you know other societies didn't mm-hmm. you know and all that grew from from that decision which family indian families have been taking on a you know a, a wide scale so there's a underlying underlying reason why mm-hmm. why you know our society has opted for that right absolutely so why, yeah so why do you think that you know our society seems to opt for particular things like why 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 didn't the us maybe you know so it's the underlying is not like i i mean i i don't know Hmm. uh it's not like the whole of the us is gender sensitive or you know uh, is absolutely at uh, men and women are at par no <laughs> so you know why do you think i mean absolutely not and and actually in this particular abortion case you can see mm-hmm. how conservative politics in the us and india kind of almost play opposite um cards right because yes. in the us if you're conservative you ban abortion yes right uh, and and they're very extreme it's it's mar- it's gender marked but it's marked by preventing of abortion and in india yes. it's the um, selective abortion that is the marker of uh, that particular uh, issue right of conservative yes. but you know um, the reasons are quite different because mm. um, I mean, in India, the public discourse. I mean, you would never find newspapers which will say, "Let's go abort uh, girl childs," right? I mean, I hope not. Yeah, no, uh, no, would right? never see. That. While yeah. while in the US, it's extremely common. You will have conservative uh, commentators in on TV and in newspapers saying the right thing to do is to um, prevent abortion from happening so there's a public discourse in the us both about access to abortion as well as uh, preventing it in india there is no public discourse on uh, female infanticide so how do, it's it's something that is entirely self organized behind the scenes things that people are uh, never going to admit and yet it's mm. happening all the time right mm-hmm. so the kind of signaling that needs to be done that this is okay that it's somehow acceptable um how is that coordinated how are people uh, you know how i i actually don't know how do people broach this issue in their families mm. i don't know 
because i know that if you go into a, a, a gynecologist thing i mean there are boards mm. now everywhere mm. uh, you know and they refuse to tell you the sex of the child yes. but uh, but there must be some people because you hear of doctors being arrested yes and and then you know and then the doctors thing is that uh, justification is that but if uh, why bring a child into the world if the person doesn't want that child yeah. that's the justification so yeah. it's all very uh, convoluted mm. right but i'm, I'm but just it's specifically indian way so yeah but i'm saying that what is the signal like how do you go to a doctor like how do you know a which doctor's office to go to i'm sure that that's known right in the networks in which in the communities in which uh, you know sex selective abortion is common i'm sure mm-hmm. it's part of the underground to know which doctors do it yes yes it possibly is yes right so how yeah. is that spread how is that knowledge spread when you know i mean this is the kind like i mean think about it this way that if you know in a very different context if you're a you know if you're a teenager and you want to know where to get something that uh, is again ostensibly either illegal or not permitted for you that could be mm-hmm. cigarettes that could be drugs whatever everybody knows mm-hmm. how to do it you know where mm-hmm. to go so this is similar it's like a socially sanctioned version of it hmm hmm of this yeah. knowledge yeah okay so you know i found this also very interesting when you speak about how since our audience is presumably cosmopolitan you know i mean or oh, that's me saying that you know when i made my notes you know how do you how is it you mention in one place that the kind of questioning that comes in uh, weird societies i mean like western educated societies you mentioned that uh, the kind of questioning that they do within their families is not present at all in india really i i'm sure it's much less so i would say right i mean obviously mm-hmm. india is too diverse i mean there are you could say parts of india what's called the avocado class right hmm. <laughs> uh, it's not my term it's not my term uh, i know i know <laughs> <laughs> uh, the avocado class i'm sure is weird oh, okay right uh, and that's yeah, about okay. 10 million uh, families and india let's hmm. say has about 100 and 100 odd million families so hmm. it's a pretty small uh, subset of i mean no it's yeah so it, it, india is probably 400 million families so mm. so it's a small subset of india i think that is fully liberal in that way right where for example mm. teenagers rebel i i can tell you yeah. this i never rebelled as a teenager i wouldn't know what to do really i mean meaning you have your own small, small forms of resistance but mm. that that thing that like as a class right mm. Mm. in the us or in I, th- i think certainly in other parts of the western the weird world right mm-hmm. as a class teenagers are supposed to have a certain attitude towards the previous generation yes right and mm-hmm. it's like a class level stance i we mm-hmm. don't have that that's true and, that's true you know we would have our individual so uh, you know the famous tolstoy claim right that all happy families are alike but all unhappy families are yes. unhappy in their own way yeah beginning of anna karenina so yeah. um, I, i think that we kind of our 
teenage years are unhappy in our own way. <laughs> so, <laughs> or maybe later too. Uh, but but how to like you know how to resist or what are the kind of universalized forms of uh, generational uh, conflict. Hmm. I think the weird world is quite different from that, right? Like, yeah, that. yeah. And and how do you, you know, how do you form the mindset of a teenager, right? Like that, the teenage years are a certain stage of life. Hmm. Itself, I mean, it's you know, it's a it's a weird concept. Yes, that's true. We, I mean, I, I mean, this is my experience. Correct me if I'm, if you experience it differently. But I think I thought of teenage, my teenage, as an extension of childhood, right? It was not as a kind of a dramatic new phase of my life. Like I am this teenager. Yeah. And also the, the number, the idea of a teenager, I mean, looking at the vast majority of India, which isn't, well, prosperous or can't uh, afford to, you mm. know, not let their children go out to work. Right. So this idea of the teenager itself is alien, right? Yes. It's limited to people like us, maybe. Who yes. Have, Avocado know, class. Avocado <laughs> <laughs> class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So let's go back to this uh, thing, you know, this thing with the Indian society. Let's mm. let's discuss that. I, you know, it's really an interesting uh, thing that you've put down. So let's, for the listener, you know, explain it. Your concept of this. So what I'm saying is, let's expand the idea of society to include the mind in it, right? So it's not mm. just behavior. It's thoughts. It's our feelings. It's uh, uh, so put the, you know, imagine a kind of a special technology, a telescope of the mind, right? That uh, reveals what's inside our heads and make that part of uh, a new concept because we can definitely see social structures outside. You know, we've already talked about caste today. uh, Right? So I'm saying that imagine this uh, bucket in which not only the things that you observe outside your head, but also the things inside your head are part of that Mm -hmm. food. Hmm. And, and ask how would you then uh, and um, because these feelings and thoughts are triggered by the technologies of modern uh, life, right? What hmm. so WhatsApp University will trigger all kinds of emotions in you. Yes. Right. Uh, it yeah. will make you feel angry about something and. And, you know, their business model and not just WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, their business model depends on successful triggering of what's inside your head. Yes. Yes. Right. Same thing with politicians. You know, it's always was the case, but now it's far more precise. Yes. I may want to make you happy in this instance today and in that instance in 20 minutes. So that's Mm -hmm. the, so the the idea of society, therefore, is that. Um, what's in your head is actually part of public uh, existence in a way that uh, it never uh, probably never was in the past. 
Yes. On a second-by-second, minute-by-minute basis, right? Mm. And so we need a new concept that uh, allows uh, both the scholar as well as the layperson to... Mm. uh, What's a concept that allows us to recognize the uh, importance of what's outside our heads to what's inside our heads and vice versa, right? That, That there are things that manipulate your thoughts and emotions, you absolutely want to know that that's happening. It's very important for us to have uh, that consciousness for any kind of democratic life now um, yeah. and the other way around, right? That what's in your heads is being revealed to other people. So I, I and the realization that sort of triggered that for me, right, mm-hmm. was that, um, you know, totalitarian governments used to enforce all kinds of beliefs, right? Like you are only allowed yes. to have certain beliefs and other beliefs were uh, forbidden. Hmm. Hmm? But that was such a crude instrument. And I was noticing, uh, for example, my daughter interacting on uh, social media, on uh, hmm. Snapchat or, uh, you know, some. I think it was Snapchat that I was observing at that time. Hmm. Her friends know exactly what she was thinking. Like, on a minute-by-minute minute basis, right? So really? what's in her head was no longer in her head. And and it's a supremely more effective form of uh, uh, thought control than uh, totalitarian governments could ever do. Hmm. Hmm. So br- this brings us to the, you know, to this thing that you said about India being a cyborg nation, you hmm. know? You know, talk about that. Because, um, as I said earlier, the first thing that, you know, we have existed about the same amount of time as computers have existed. Yes. Right. And mm-hmm. therefore, uh, from, and, you know, literacy has taken over, has taken on, you know, relatively universal characteristics only in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Right. If you look at the statistics on how many Indians were literate, Sarvasiksha Abhyan is a relatively common I mean, new thing in yes. our, even in uh, post-independence India, right? Mm. So mm. Sarvasiksha Abhyan has existed only in the internet era. So the only form of literacy and of engagement with uh, the text has happened for most people, most Indians, especially most young Indians. You know, our mm. median age is what, 27? So. Yeah. Um, most Indians have only experienced uh, text as digital text. Mm, mm. You know, I mean, if you yeah. ask the, a 22-year-old who's, after all, more or less the median age in India, mm. how have they consumed the written word? They've done it on a screen. Yes, of course. Right? Uh, I yeah. mean, uh, so... When I say cyber India, what I mean is that our consciousness of text, which, uh, again, the famous claim being that, you know, nations are imagined communities with language and especially print being the form of that imagination. It's not print mm-hmm. for us. It's, it's, yeah. it's uh, bits. Yes. So we have imagined our collective existence for most of us as uh, cyborgs, as mm. people into computing. Mm. 
this growing radicalization you know is possible because of this right so how in you you mentioned how we need to be vigilant about you know what we uh, how we consume what we get on you know on whatsapp online on social media whatever mm-hmm. so but how, how does you and i might might be aware of it right and we might be conscious of what we consume and what we reject in you know in what's shown to us but what comes to us but in this thing about getting how does a larger you know swathe of people achieve that sort of education you know and how do we do it at scale right like because yeah yeah uh, i mean so there are I, I don't have an answer to this question. I <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, uh, but, uh, uh, no, because I, I feel like the obvious way that is being tried in different parts of the world is to regulate the companies that do this, right? So mm-hmm. you can't educate people, but maybe you can regulate Facebook. Hmm. Hmm. So, yeah. uh, but. You know, this is a new media form, and I'm yeah. just thinking how radical, say, print would have been, um, yes. and how violent print was when it first came out. Right? I mean, in Europe, if you mm. think about it, um, the Gutenberg Bible was the first, yeah. uh, uh, you know, product of the print revolution, and yes. very soon after that, you have Martin Luther uh, yes. thesis. And that led to an exceptionally violent time in Europe, right? Like the brutality yes. of the Catholic-Protestant wars mm. um, was pretty intense. Yeah, and so, the emergence of all the new churches and and yeah. the eventual, uh, you yeah. know, going away to the new world, all that. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, history tells us that that wasn't pretty. Mm. Mm. We experienced print and and you know literacy as a Great, and I think correctly. Uh, I am definitely a person of the book, um, mm. and uh, we experience it as a liberating device, mm. Mm. right? Uh, and in, we say that even in Hindi, "pada" or "anpada." Huh. Right? Anpada, uh, anpada, and gawar sort of go together in our imagination. Yes, yes. Right? But actually, you might argue that print was an ex- was a very disruptive and potentially violent. Uh, intervention when it first happened, mm-hmm. right? The, yeah. So the book, the book was the first capitalist object in my view, right? The first mm-hmm. artifact that was replicated and distributed in large numbers. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so I, so I, don't, I don't have an answer, but I think that <laughs> uh, we will take us a while to uh, create a a digital mind that is sort of really robust and capable of critical thinking and all of those things. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I found this thing about, you know, um, you mentioned about lynching being, uh, uh, you know, I, I know there's a very specific sentence you said about, uh, let me find it. About lynching is a marriage of video games, predictive and uh, analytics social media spectacle and communal hatred and we'll see more of them for sure so talk about that because that is true it's like that, that that's where i mean it's in the lynching it's the whole spectacle of it just yeah. like how terrorists 
you know, like whatever the Al Qaeda or the yeah. you know Taliban used to do these public beheadings and stuff, and yes. and transmit it on, on, online. So you know, it's a similar thing, so, isn't it? So it is, and it's very effective, right? I mean, if I had to, I mean, if I was to, if I'm being very calculative and I had to decide between a riot and a lynching, hmm. Hmm. I would pick a lynching any day. I mean, hmm. only. Uh, uh, kills one person. That's all. Maybe one or two people, hmm. but uh, it inspires so much terror in other people. Right? Like it's a way to tell uh, a community, yes. right, that you better behave. And yeah. uh, while the riot is far more destructive, and you never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's economic consequences. I mean, lynching is like surgical operation. It's like a it's like a predator drone. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same, I think it's the same mindset as, uh, uh, if I may say so, an American president uh, ordering uh, a, a drone attack on a, on a car, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like, okay, I know where, so it's the same logic. You, you have surveillance, you have prediction, you have uh, a choice of target, you are sending a message, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, except that in this case, it's not being done by the state. It's mm-hmm. sort of sanctioned by the state, perhaps, but being organized by private individuals. Yes. Yes. With a certain agenda. Yes. You know. So, okay. Talking about, you know, surveillance. Mm-hmm. I mean, like we now live in, in, in a uh, world of surveillance, right? And we also, also things like Facebook, and stuff when we are presenting ourselves for surveillance, as in like we are giving our own information out there willingly as well, right? We are participants in the surveillance as well. So talk about that, you know, and uh, yeah. consequences. I mean, there is a famous, uh, I guess it's a Silicon Valley phrase, right? Which is, mm-hmm. if you are not the, if you're not the uh, paying customer, then you are the product. Yeah, yeah. Right? We don't pay mm-hmm. for WhatsApp. We don't pay for Facebook. They have to mm-hmm. make money somewhere. So then you have to ask, oh, how? Right? Mm-hmm. right? And so um, the only way is by harvesting your thoughts that you're giving freely. Yeah. And you may think that, I mean, the problem is that at an individual level, it just feels like sharing. I'm telling my friends what I'm thinking about something. Right? Yeah, yeah. But when you aggregate it, it's such a powerful predictor of a certain demographic. Yes. And that is what is um, amazing in a view, right? That aggregation. Aggregation is something that we can't be conscious of as individuals, right? Mm. I have no visibility on how my. uh, you know, posts on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is that I use are uh, being aggregated with others. But, yes. And yet that aggregation produces, it doesn't just produce predictions, it actually shapes who we are. Hmm. Right? I mean, the other day somebody was saying that, um, I mean, and Facebook's algorithms keep changing, but right now, let's say that Facebook is boosting posts that are um, getting a lot of engagement, right? So if I write something that's being liked and shared by a lot of people, Hmm. then um, 
Facebook is showing it repeatedly to people who haven't yet liked it. It's yes. like, come on, engage with this, engage with this. Mm-hmm. Their timelines, it's not going away. And so you don't know that. I mean, somebody noticed mm-hmm. it, but most people won't. And yeah. therefore, you have, you're getting a tacit impression of what Facebook thinks is important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, so your uh, behind-the-scenes mental landscape of what is valuable and important is being shaped algorithmically. Yes, yes. You're being played, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but we are suckers, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this whole... this And this idea of cognitive capitalism, you know, is part of that, right? Talk about that. Yeah, because I think that the... No, who may, I mean, when I was a kid, what were the biggest, I mean, for the longest time, the biggest, most powerful corporations were um, fossil fuel companies, right? Yeah. Exxon yeah. was the biggest forever, as far as I can remember. Um, yes. General Motors, the big automotive companies. Yes. Right. But that has been totally, I mean, software has eaten the world, so to speak. Yes. Right. Um, hmm. Tesla's valuation is bigger than uh, General Motors. Yes, he really gulps his food down. Yeah, <laughs> hilarious. Right. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Go on. No, and and so the big Silicon Valley companies and their uh, Chinese or to some extent Indian counterparts are the biggest companies in the world, and the way hmm. they and their business model is not about selling stuff. Yeah. Right? It's about yeah. the things that they do based on what we do things with stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a second order. Yes. I mean, Google is not, I mean, Google is putting ads in front of you, perhaps, yeah. but it's yeah. really, its business model is not to put, it's not to sell anything to you. Mm-hmm. It's to take what's you want to do on Google and what other people want to sell to you and bundle it uh, and, uh, you know, bring it back to you. I mean, if you think about the 2008 uh, economic crisis, right, the subprime Mm. loans. I mean, subprime loans were not people offering loans to others, Mm. right? It's not like I want to buy a house and you're selling me a house or you're selling me or it's not even that you want to buy a house and I want to give you a loan to buy a house. Mm. It is that you have millions of people have wanted to buy houses. Uh, hundreds and thousands of banks have wanted to give you loans for that. And someone yeah. else is bundling those loans and saying these loans are potentially risky. And therefore, I will bundle those loans and sell you that bundle. Mm-hmm. That second order. That is cognitive capitalism. Right? Mm-hmm. Cognitive capitalism is that you are really... Um, selling and buying probabilities, risks, yeah, yeah. predictions. Mm. Mm. And that's where the most money is there to be made and that's where the most volatility is there, right? And that volatility mm. and uncertainty and risk percolates through everything. It's there in, in the finance industry. It's there in social media, in all of these, right? Mm. It's the bundling and unbundling of risk 
which leads to enormous amounts of uh, churn and, of course, profit. Mm, mm, mm. <sighs> it's enough to make you completely paranoid, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, like last question. So, who are we then? You know. So I, I say this again and again in my book that we are not a we we are not a natural object, right? We are made object, and so the who are yeah, we yeah. is constantly being reconstructed on a minute by minute yes. basis. Uh, hmm. But at the same time, I mean, maybe I'm a romantic. Uh, I feel like. Uh, Hmm. 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 That that we will learn to accommodate, you know, this phase. I mean, as a civilization, we have absorbed all kinds of things. That's true. Right? We are very yeah. good at that. We we yeah. digest and then we make it our own. We will yeah. make this our own as well. Right? Hmm. And hmm. and maybe uh, okay. So it's also possible. We kind of lost out in the age of print, right? We were colonized. We were, yes. Uh, and and with all, I mean, I'm not saying that uh, it was all bad, um, but but we definitely were at the um, receiving end of a great deal of unwelcome news. Yes, yes. And, and uh, hopefully this new world of the 21st century which has computing, climate change, all of these enormously important influences that are disrupting the entire planet. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe India has a chance to be one of the places where this uh, change is really absorbed, understood, and mm-hmm. where we can hopefully flourish. And we can flourish in a way that becomes a model for others. That's my mm-hmm. hope. That's who we are. Okay. Okay, great. So for, for the listeners, go out and get Who Who Are We by Rajesh Kasturi Rangan, an inquiry into the Indian mind and how we came to be who we are. It's a very interesting book and it makes you think, uh, It like, like uh, Rajesh has mentioned in the book, it gives you hooks to hang your thoughts on and, you know, uh, and it makes you think about a lot of other things that emerge from the book. So it's, um, it's a good read. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Thank you, Anjula, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.